What up artists? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm the creative director and founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. This is the Art Pays Me podcast and I'm passionate about finding ways that people like you and me can make a living for ourselves off of our creativity and you know maybe we can make the world a better place at the same time. Let's get into it. What's up everybody? Welcome to Art Pays Me. We have a special episode today. You might have heard me mention this person before. It is my wife, Natasha Nurse Jones. So, you know, it's been heavy this week, especially for black people. And it's been difficult for us to sometimes figure out what we want to say, processing our thoughts and going through our whole range of emotions and we just wanted to come together today to to just share our thoughts and um, I always have great discussions with Natasha at home and uh, she graciously came on, agreed to come on the podcast and, and share some thoughts with us. So wifey, what do you do? Well, I'm an educator. I've been working in at, in the field of education for 20 years now, and I'm a currently a vice principal as well. Okay. And where'd you grow up? I was born in Edmonton, Alberta. However, I only lived there for two years of my life and then moved to Sydney, Nova Scotia, where I have family roots in Sydney. Um and spent my childhood in Sydney, and then moved to Halifax 21 years ago, and I've been here ever since. Yeah, and then we crossed paths, Mm -hmm. and here we are. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't be in Canada if it wasn't for this woman, so um, (laughs) I don't know if y'all are happy about that or not. (laughs) Uh. So, Natasha, what kind of child were you? I think I was a very creative child. I was always, um, from a young age, involved in the creative arts through dance and took piano lessons. Um, I was also very interested in science and loved to read. Um, And I think those things have kind of instilled some... um, things that I tend to be interested in as an adult as well. Um, I also played uh, volleyball in junior high, um, and I was the oldest of four children. Uh Uh-huh. So when I met Natasha, she was a teacher, and I was struck by how creative a practice it is. There was a lot of uh, crafty type activities that you have to do to sort of keep the kids interested and the classroom structure and the design of the classroom is a super creative process and I never really took that into consideration when I saw my teachers that I had in school go through all that process so I find that very interesting that teaching in general is actually a a creative process so um, what what actually drew you to the classroom well, I think when I reflect, reflected back in choosing what my career was going to be at that point when 
you were a young um, uh, adult or in, in high school and junior high and trying to think of what you want to do, um, I kind of really didn't realize I knew I wanted to be um, somewhere in science and pursued a Bachelor of Science degree um, because I really was interested in science and I loved science. Um, but as I reflected back to um, summer jobs that I had and my interests in, in volunteer work that I did, I noticed that there was a pattern of working with children and working with children um, of various needs. And uh, so I realized and became more interested in education. And that was when I made the decision to apply for my Bachelor of Education and uh, go into teaching. But it was it's interesting that you said um, you noticed that it's a creative field. And I kind of feel that because I, for me, um, along my experience of having uh, new classes every year, the students are always different who are in front of you. And that's something that I had to do is be very creative to engage the students in front of me. Um, it wasn't just doing the same things over and over. Um, you really built upon getting to know your students and getting to know what their likes are, their interests. And it is a creative field. I never really thought of it that way until you mentioned it to that level. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, it really is. I don't, I don't, I'm surprised I never mentioned that to you. But yeah, like, I'm always shocked. Like, and I think you even underestimate how skilled you are because I remember when sometimes I'd stay home with the kids and you'd say, well, you know, just create an activity for them. Do this and that. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. That's that's a skill you have. Like, that's, that's something that, like, your brain is really adept at, at developing. So you went back to school multiple times during our marriage and you did master's degrees and additional learning. So can you tell me a bit about that? I think it's really important to be um, a reflective and lifelong learner. Um, those are something that are the some things that are really important to me and I make an intentional effort to um, regularly challenge myself and grow and learn as an educator. Um, so the first time I went back to school when um, I think it was Eva was young, yeah. um, I got my master's in education and lifelong learning and it had a focus of Afrocentric policy and research. Um, and then I went back again more recently um, and I got a diploma, a three-year diploma that had a master's equivalent, and it was um, in instructional leadership, which really helped me gain the in-depth knowledge in being an administrator. Um, so I found both of those degrees have really kind of shaped and grown who I, I am today, and, in, and um, my master's in education um, with the Afrocentric policy and research focus um, really helped me to look at things and biases and policies um, from an Afrocentric lens and to see how can we um, 
how policies are including students of African Nova Scotia descent and how these policies affect them. So what was your experience being a, a black kid growing up in Sydney? Um, growing up in Sydney, um, I guess to give some background, um, my dad is African Nova Scotian and his heritage or my heritage is um, from Barbados and my mom is white and our heritage is from the Netherlands. So I grew up in a biracial family. Uh, my parents were together since they were 16 and they were married for 40, almost 40 years. Um, and we, as a family, experienced um, many incidents in different levels of, of racism. One of my experiences in school when I was really young, probably was, I'm thinking, around grade one, um, I was really scared of Halloween dress-up and costumes, um, and there was some type of Halloween activity going on before it actually was Halloween that my mother was able to tell the teacher, and I got really upset. Um, there were some older students that were dressed up doing some type of, coming into our class doing some type of activity, and the teacher um, put me in the storage closet and I, she was very frustrated at me and um, it was more or less a punishment. Um, and I had to stay there for, for an extended period of time. And, you know, being that young, my classmates, I'm sure, is all grade one students or students that young have been upset about things, you know, or nervous of something or crying of something. Yet, they were not treated in that way. I was the only one, and I was I was in a class where I was the only um, black child in the classroom in a predominantly white school. And, you know, that's one of my earliest experiences that I can think of, and there have been others since then as well. You know, when I think back, uh, you know, there was other experiences as well in my family um, you know, I had family members that were called nigger. Um, you know, my family really liked to camp and, you know, that was something that we did as a family was going camping, um, throughout Nova Scotia and the Maritimes. Um, and we would have sometimes random people come up to us and say, um, well, where are you going? Where are you camping? Or where, where are you going next? And we would tell them and they would say, you shouldn't go to that part. You're not going to be welcomed there. Yeah, that, so we actually still camp today. So Natasha convinced me that we should get a trailer so we can take on her family tradition. And I was hesitant. <laughs> and uh, eventually she won. And um, we, we go camping every summer. And... Uh, while we didn't we haven't had those direct experiences it's still very evident that the camping community is not used to seeing black people out there and we got a lot of stares we got a lot of like because we're in these small rural towns and it's uh while no one has outright attacked us you definitely feel this like why is everyone staring at us? What's going on? What's going on? 
And it was particularly pronounced last year, really. Remember last year we went? And it was like... Mm-hmm. And I was just in a mood, so I was wearing all my um, <laughs> protest t-shirts and black t-shirts and uh, unseated territories and all this stuff. Because I was just like, you know what? If you're going to look at it, you might as well get an eyeful. So, um, yeah, like, it's it's kind of like those things you sort of, you, you sort of deal with the, the subtle otherness of your existence. And then I guess um, my experiences in university, I think, were kind of the first times I realized. So I came, when I first came, I remember I was so shocked at how nice everyone was and how welcoming everyone was. And then, like, over time, I started to just notice that, like, the topic of race was always avoided. Um, differences were always ignored and not acknowledged. Whereas uh, at home, it was just kind of like normal to, to acknowledge that someone was different. And you could talk about race. You could talk about certain things. Your white friends would come to the hip-hop party with you. They'd go to the, the reggae party. Whereas I'd invite, I'd get invited to the lower deck or place like that. And they would say... I would say, okay, sure, I'll check it out. It's not really my my music or anything, but I'll go with you guys. And then I'd invite the people to the hip-hop party or the Caribbean party at um, the party house back then. That's where, that's where everybody went on Friday nights who was into that kind of music. And they'd be like, well, I'm going to be the only white person in there, so I can't go. And I'd be like, oh, you mean like I'm the only black person everywhere I go, including this dorm? So... Uh, I, I started to pick up on certain things like that. And then, like, I did a, a T-shirt called Fear of a Black Scotia. And I remember talking to some people at school sometimes. And they'd be like, Dwayne, you look like you could beat somebody up. You look like a tough guy and all this kind of stuff. And I'd be like, really? Because in Bermuda, I'm a nerd. <laughs> so um, I don't I don't understand this. <laughs> it was kind of part of it was like, I part, I'm not going to lie, part of me embraced this new tough guy thing and reinvented myself. <laughs> so, But at the same time, it's like, uh, you don't like being um, seen in that light. You don't want to be seen as an intimidating figure. Like you, I started to um, build up this automatic reflex where I find I would start to smile more than I felt comfortable or I do different things. I dress certain ways to, to, uh, perform (laughs) for people to make them feel comfortable, but no one was making any effort to make me feel comfortable. And, um, then when you see, uh, these K words calling the police on black men for no reason, like, that, that was like my worst fear back then. Like, I, I hope people don't really think that like this is a new trend. No, this is something that has happened throughout history. And uh, it's, you know, it's sad. And that's why, like, for me, when we went camping last year, for just be like, you know what? I'm just I'm just too old and too frustrated to perform for people anymore. So I just do what I do. Uh, but um yeah, these these are some of the things that that we've personally experienced. So with that said, 
how do you, so you're from Sydney, we're in Halifax, and a lot of these, this death that is happening in the United States, it affects us very deeply. How do you feel about, like, when, when people dismiss how we feel or, like, why do you feel? Why do you feel that we feel connected to these experiences? I feel, well, personally, I feel when I heard and keep hearing of these murders, um, I feel a range of emotions and grief, sadness, anger, frustration, tiredness. Um, I have a really heavy heart and a lot of fear and frustration as well. Um, and I'm not one to open up and often be vulnerable with people that I don't know. And this is, is extremely hard for me to do something like this. I tend to only talk to people that are close to me, um, that I have that safe, established environment with. Um, but it is truly exhausting to be faced with this on a regular basis. Um, and... I think I have a hard time understanding why other people don't understand why the events in the U.S. have connected with us here in Canada. And it's, it's, hard, it's hard for me to grapple with that because when you see black people being killed just because they're black, that creates a lot of fear and anxiety that that's going to happen to you or your family members as well or somebody that you love or somebody that you know. Um, and I read um, an article where Jagmeet Singh um had a quote and it really resonated with me um, because he said it was painful and stomach churning, which yes, we all, that definitely resonates me. But he said, when you see someone who looks like you being killed like that, it makes you feel like you have no worth, no value. It makes you angry. And that's exactly how I was feeling when I keep hearing these events happening over and over again yeah like in our in our household it was it was kind of weird um and this this one just because for whatever reason the world seemed to react a little more like we were upset about Ahmaud Arbery we were we were upset about Breonna Taylor we were upset about um Trayvon and Eric Garner and everybody else and you know that dumbass lady in the Central Park, calling the cops on that dude. Like, we were upset by all of these things, but it just felt like um, the world started to take notice with the George Floyd thing. And it's very interesting because I noticed with us and with a lot of our black peers, we were like, I think for the first time, we were witnessing a lot of white people be enraged. And we've already been enraged for a long time by this and we were just in a point of mostly sadness uh 
and which was why for me it was hard to I didn't want to release an episode of the show that that day um, that Sunday and you weren't really uh, you weren't you you don't publicly talk about things like that anyway but you were just even extra um, reserved and I found that across a lot of people and, and it was just it was it was interesting that um, you know you st- I started to see all of this. It was a stark contrast. Now it was like all of this activity and activity and discussion and 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 complaining and and protesting, and for some of us, we just felt like I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to say. Like, why does this have to keep happening? Are we, is this something we're just going to keep seeing in five more years? And are we going to be back here next week? And I think, too, when you started reading and I started reading all of the, you know, the articles and the kind of pushback, too, that we were reading from people in Canada yep. that were saying, well, it's not that bad here. And, or saying it's only heightened in Canada because of what's going on in the U S and the people that were making these statements were people that have a lot of white privilege and power Actually, these were statements that I heard from politicians in Canada and multiple politicians. So when you're seeing those messages where you're not being, your voices are not being validated and your experience is not being validated, they're being diminished and or saying that it's non-existent or, you know, what your experience is, is, is not real, that too creates Mm -hmm. a lot of, um, frustration and hurt. Yeah. And I remember there was also this general lack of acknowledgement by leadership in the beginning. I mean, eventually they came around, but there is valid concern that if the concerns of your black citizens are not taken seriously with this stuff, that, you know, there will be more resistance and more. And I, I find with this, um, you know, even though we're not getting killed at the same rate in Canada as they are in the States, um, this also made people realize that systemically overall, there are problems that need to be addressed, even though, like you said, there's still a lot of people who are refusing to acknowledge it. It just really highlighted for black people that like enough is enough. Like we're not going to just stop at you guys. Okay. We're not going to kill you today and then move on. We're now saying, no, we need more. We need to demand even better of our so-called allies If you're going to be an ally, you need to actually not just feel sorry for us, not just be empathetic, not just be sad that an innocent black man was killed. 
You need to start putting your money where your mouth is, start donating, start participating, start hiring black people, start... Um, <laughs> Creating spaces to have conversations with other white people yes. about doing, reflecting on your own actions, your own thoughts, your own biases, um, times that you may have had no response to something that has per, um, perpetuated anti-black racism. Um, I think those things need to be done as well. And you do have to recognize that Canada was built on a system that systematically oppressed black people and indigenous people. Um, so the racism is there within the system that was created and it's still perpetuated because even though we may have policies that try to counteract some of those things, the biases that are still there of people that are in power and privilege and reinforcing that. So it has to be, and it, and it, and it's designed to appear that it's not, it's not always right in your face. You have to look deeper sometimes to notice, mm -hmm. um, especially if you're not a person that's directly experiencing it. So that's important to think about as well. Yeah, like um, I think Canada's been able to skate by with the polite veneer for a bit. And while people are friendly, people are nice, there are those with... Um, obviously racist values who still know how to play the game of politeness and but behind your back they are upholding white supremacy and uh we we act like it's not happening because we don't happen to see it in our faces um but yeah enough's enough yeah but if you talk to and i mean that's what i challenge people to talk to people yeah um, and, you know, each black experiences are different as well. Like there isn't one black experience per se, but I challenge you to talk to as many people as, as are willing to open up and, and it has to be in a space that the person is willing to do that because there's a lot of hurt and, and, um, grief behind that as well so you have to be respectful of that as well yeah like don't like for me uh, it's been I've been appreciative of people reaching out to me and asking me how I feel but I don't always feel like I'm in a space to even articulate it or talk about it and um, if you are expressing concern and empathy for someone you know uh don't be offended if you never get a response <laughs> because that that could very well happen and it's just because they are just overwhelmed at this point in time and um like part of that allyship is being willing to just take that weight and not make it about you not take offense uh and just move on and and continue this fight beyond like next week when the next drama happens 
um, this needs to continue. This needs to be the new future for for everyone, uh, not just you know if these if these officers get the jail time that they deserve. We can't be like work is done, racism's over, racism's fixed. Uh, I think a lot of us relaxed when Obama became president, and that was not, you know, it wasn't the it wasn't the solution. It, there, it didn't solve all of the problems that exist for us as black people. It didn't cure anti-black racism because a lot of people think, well, America had a, a black president, so it's over. No, it's not over. It wasn't over then. It's not over now. Things just get moved to the shadows. So um, let's make sure that we, we keep this movement going forward. Yeah, and there has to be action. Um, just talking about it is not enough. I mean, we've been talking about it um, for a very long time. And at the same time, like we've historically been placed with the burden of trying to solve this on our own. Yeah. And that is not really our place. Um, it's really important for white people to be having those conversations about anti-black racism with other white people and to, you know, dig deep on what they can actually do to um, create some actions that can change things systemically. What's the hardest part about what you do as a teacher? Or educator, I should say. I think one of the hardest things is just the pressures um, that are associated with trying to make a change and carrying the burden to make the change. Um, to be in a position where you have to convince or prove yourself to other people um, and receiving different responses from people in comparison to white counterparts um, in my career. Those are things that, you know, um, that I have experienced. And, you know, just not being consistently valued as a professional as well. Another thing I find difficult just with you and me, with our own kids, is to educate them and prepare them to deal with anti-black racism and the societal messages that are out there that, you know, are telling them that they're not good enough for, you know, their being black is bad and us having to have those conversations with our children to counteract that and to make sure that we are um, raising them to be strong and be proud of their black heritage and you know to have be confident and feel valued um, as black people so I that that's hard because you have to have these difficult conversations with kids that other kids don't even it's not even in their world of thought yeah. at such a young age so that part is hard because these conversations are not easy for adults to have adults are struggling with having these conversations so 
you know, trying to support our kids through that as well. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. It's like, it's this weird balance of how do we make them strong and confident people while also being aware that there are systemic things in place designed to hold them back without like giving them a defeatist attitude. It's like this this juggling act that black parents have to deal with all the time of um, be aware of these things in case you encounter them, but also you are strong, you are smart, you are capable, you can do anything you want to do. So our kids, I think, are, are, <laughs> they're a miracle because they, they, they have the confidence that um, they, they could do anything that they want to do. And it's amazing to me that how well they have adapted to this environment that we're in. And, you know, it was sad this week for them to be exposed to what's going on in the news and having to deal with the reality of that, but then still being able to bounce back and, and know that they are capable and that, um, they don't have to feel defeated by this world sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any, like, thoughts as to why this one... Like, do you... Have you know? Like, I know I noticed that it, it, this, particularly George Floyd, seems to be different. Do you have, you, do you have any idea... Like, as to why that might be? I don't know. That's a question that I've asked myself um, and that we've talked about together before, you know, as well. Um, I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah, because we've been upset about this stuff for a long, long time. And um, it's... it's telling that this one's different um what what do you think could be done to uh better serve black youth in the education system well i think that we have to support our black youth by validating and listening to their experiences and really hearing them children have a perspective and they have a voice and they see a lot more than what they're credited for so we really have to have those conversations and listen to really hear them um i think it's really important to build authentic and meaningful relationships that make them feel valued and affirm them um, build their identity and their confidence, their strength and knowledge as learners and individuals. Having these regular conversations with them and, you know, making sure that their, their interests are included um, in the classroom and that, you know, they have an excitement for learning because they feel represented with their learning and, and they feel valued 
Um, white people need to be having the conversations with anti-racism in schools, um, with other staff. Um, and it, it's a, re, a process of reflection, I think, that has to occur with really looking at personal bias and examining, you know, like I said before, um, how they might have supported um, anti-black racism through their thoughts or actions or beliefs or um, words or lack of response or lack of validation of, of a black experience that they heard. Um, and they have to examine what they can do themselves to change that narrative. You know, being committed to these narratives to break down and exposing bias unconsciously and consciously. So I think those are really important steps. And I really, really hope that it's not this, this movement that we're seeing is not just all talk. We really need to have some actions the actions are, are what is going to change things. We've been talking for so long and we haven't been felt heard. So in order for us to feel heard, we really need to see that, um, that some actions are being implemented and things are going to change. Amen. Natasha, thank you for doing Art Pays Me. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, wifey, she she was really... <laughs> she was, uh, This is impressive because uh, I didn't think we'd see this this day. But, um, man, this world is is flipping upside down right now. So, like, you know... <sighs> Well, I just really want to get the message out there and I want to, I want to express, you know, my perspective, um, and, you know, do that in a safe environment. And, um, I really, you know, hope that there's a, you know, somebody out there that this may connect with and, um, yeah, like, I think that's part of what we need to do is speak up about our personal experiences when you feel comfortable to do that. And I feel that now was my time to do that. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know if we I can't remember if we said this already, but yeah, don't pressure people to share them before they're ready because you know, when they're ready, they're ready. And, um, I saw that on social media this week. A lot of people complaining that certain people were silent and things like that. But you got to extend some grace to your black friends, your black family members and people like that, because some of them are just getting the impact of this, of this for them is different than it is for others. So thank you for listening. So what are you going to make for supper? I don't know. <laughs> I can't get a day off. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Art Pays Me podcast. Thank you to Lanji Beats 
for the theme music. If you got anything out of this show, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. The more you do this, the more reach the podcast gets, and the more artists I can help learn to make a living at what they love. If you want to know more about what I do, hit me up at artpaysme.com or at artpaysme on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest. See y'all next time.